Dr. Zakira Dokrat, um, born and raised in Makanda, uh, yeah, the part of the world that is formerly known as Gramstown in the Eastern Cape province. And uh, yeah, we talked to her this evening about uh, her work and uh, the genesis of her interest in uh, the language of uh, Isikosa and its interface uh, with the ability of people to access justice. And uh, she joins us uh, this evening. She's a postdoctoral research fellow in forensic linguistics and language and law at the University of the Western Cape. Uh, Dr. Zakira, Maskwamke Labag Metro FM talk, Sipotis as Bulise. Well, I am going to Kunjani, but. Dipili Lamama Kunjan. And Dipili Langos, you are going to after Makanda, man. Oh, Pilsa Makanda, I thought you were in Cape Town. Uh, I'm here. I'm in Makanda. Um, I'm still here because of COVID. You know, everything is done virtually. So okay. um, at the moment, I'm still based at home, which is a pleasure being in the Eastern Cape, as you would know, being from Queenstown. I hear. Yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, yeah, that, that this part of the world is very, very cold. I can tell you that. Um, but uh, yeah, real, real pleasure to have you, uh, Dr. Zakira, on uh, our Thought Leader Thursday segment, and uh, you're doing. Uh, fascinating i guess uh, you know a set of work here which i find quite interesting but before we get to the work let's maybe unpack i guess the genesis of your interest in uh, you know the use of language um, and i guess its interface with uh, all manner of uh, societal activities least of all the law and access to justice yes definitely i wonder first of all thank you for having me on the show and good evening to your listeners um, you know, language underpins our identity and who we are and how we communicate, as you say, and it's really central to our society. And as South Africans, we have such a, a rich linguistic uh, history. And, you know, with our 11 official languages and all our African languages, I mean, there's just so much to celebrate. And it's very sad to see when we talk about access to justice that the language question doesn't really feature much. And when it does feature, our focus is on English um, and how English access, uh, in, in fact, fosters access to justice, which is incorrect, in my opinion. And we don't really focus on how the African languages can enhance access to justice and ensure that the majority of our people have access to the courts and uh, achieve justice at the end of the day, at the end of a trial. Mm, mm. But I mean, some, some people might say, well, yeah, but Zakira, you know, there's always interpreters. I mean, there's, there's somebody who's standing there and, you know, uh, and I must add, I mean, you know, some of the interpreters speak the most immaculate, of course, I've heard. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, somebody might say, well, the barriers aren't that much if you at least have some interlocutor who, who's able, I guess, to, to navigate both, both uh, realms of language. Definitely, you know, Ayabonga, I don't want to take it away from the interpreters. I think, you know, the point of my research as well is never to take the most important part of the work that the interpreters do in our courts away from them um, or their value in the system. But um, many of the interpreters that we have, unfortunately, across the country, uh, don't have the qualifications to be interpreters in our courts. Mm. Um, they don't have formal qualifications, Ayabonga, which is, it, it does a disservice to both the interpreter and the litigant before court, which is very unfortunate. And, you know, if we want to go with an interpretation system solely and have this English language of record, um, then we need to plow more money in as the Department of Justice 
um, the judiciary. All those stakeholders then need to say, how do we improve the interpretation system in our country? You know, we need to have our interpreters trained. We need to ensure that the system is regulated. Uh, you know, recently, I wonder if I can just share with you, one of our students at the University of the Western Cape is doing research on interpreters in courts. And as part of his research, he came across an advert in the Worcester Magistrates Court. And this advert was just uh, a really a, a poster plucked outside on a notice board. And it said, we are looking for interpreters. Are you fluent in English, Afrikaans, and Isakosa? And it said, please drop your CV off and you can be a casual interpreter. So, I mean, you know, we, we worry when we see these notices and these adverts, Ayabonga, appearing. Because, you know, what type mm. of person are we employing as an interpreter for such an important job, you know, um, where somebody's life really hangs in the balance, especially in a criminal trial? It's, you know, it, whether you're going to jail or, you know, whether you'll be acquitted. So it's, it's quite a serious thing. And to, to try and measure that is, is very difficult to place a, a cost, in fact, on that, you know. Mm. Doc, I want us to maybe pause here for a second uh, and take a quick spot break. But when we come back, uh, I want us to continue on that vein, because I I do think that, you know, in a country where there's all these dualities, even in terms of legal systems, uh, then, you know, the role of African language, I guess, becomes uh, more, if not, I guess, uh, critically important. Twenty-two minutes it is after eight p.m. here on Metro FM Talk, and uh, it's our Thought Leader Thursday segment. I'm in conversation with Dr. Zakira Dokrat, a postdoctoral research fellow in forensic linguistics, language, and law at the University of the Western Cape. And uh, Dr. Zakira, before we went to the break, I guess you were talking about uh, you know some of the systemic challenges uh, that exist, uh, be it in the qualification of interpreters, uh, but also I guess the choice of English as a language of record. Uh, in the justice system. But we also know, I guess, in places like the Eastern Cape, uh, that you also might have, I guess, a duality in terms of systems of justice uh, in the form of traditional uh, courts or, you know, uh, the judicial role of some traditional authorities interfacing as it often does uh, with the more, I guess, um, sort of, 
how do I say it, Western Roman Dutch type uh, a legal system that we have. Uh, what role does language play, I guess, in, you know, creating some form of uh, uh, reconciliation between the two? Well, you know, I have a very interesting question. Thank you for that. Um, here in the Eastern Cape, uh, the customary law courts operate in Ithacosa. But we are seeing mm. here in the Mount Frere areas recently emerging that new chiefs are actually trying to adopt the English language of record in customary law courts as well. So it's very interesting to see how the language of record in sort of the Western system, if you will, in our mainstream courts, is being mimicked now in our customary law courts. And, you know, you, you can attest to this, I'm sure, Ayabonga, that there are cultural nuances in, in, in African culture that just cannot be interpreted or translated and explained in English. And that's where mm. we come unstuck um, in our Western courts. And it's, it's very concerning to see. You know, I was talking to a court intermediary a couple of weeks ago who works in the Paul region, and she was saying to me that, you know, she deals primarily with children in sexual assault cases. And these children don't use the, the terms for, for rape and sexual assault. They use euphemisms because it's considered taboo to use those terms. Now, it's very hard for an interpreter mm. then to, to still be filling, in a sense, a knowledge gap in our courts. And, and this becomes more complicated when the interpreter lacks the skill. So, again, it goes back to, you know, what are we trying to achieve with this English language of record um, policy and, mm. and why are we not then putting in enough measures to ensure that our interpreters are qualified and to fill these knowledge gaps? And, and you know, it's almost like we're trying to compensate uh, in, in a way to move away from the African languages and try and make English work as a language of record, rather than seeing how can we develop our African languages for use in courts. Mm, mm. And, and you, you know, when you put it that way, uh, I guess in many ways there's, there's also question marks around not just only the, the language as an operative mechanism to, I don't know how to say this, to, you know, meet out justice or to interpret the law in very specific ways, be it from a jurisprudential or even other perspective, but also the question marks around the assumptive logic of that. Um, so, you know, a language like Isikosa, which is built on so much idiomatic expression, um, mm. might probably not fit neat and glove with some of the very uh, expectations of preciseness, expectations of, you know, succinctness that might be embedded in, I guess, Western notions of law, Western notions of jurisprudence. Definitely, Ayabonga. And, you know, the, the English is that, that the interpretation, the English trans interpretation or translation is what is recorded in the record. So that is what is reflected in the judgment, not what the witness mm -hmm. or the litigant said in Isikosa, for instance. It is what the interpreter has stated to the court that is recorded there. Mm. So, you know, it, we, we wonder what is lost along the way. You know, it's, it's really what we call lost in translation. Now we're saying lost in interpretation. And it, it places our litigants and, and our witnesses at such an unfair disadvantage. Because, I mean, you having to be heard through a third person, where an English mother tongue speaker or somebody who has proficiency in English uh, can communicate directly with the court and the judicial officer understands you perfectly clearly. 
Now, you know, you having to worry as an African language speaker in court or an Afrikaans mother tongue speaker, you know, what is actually happening? Is it being interpreted correctly? And um, what is being said about me? So, I mean, I, I wouldn't even begin to imagine what that person goes through in a legal setting that is already intimidating mm. in itself. And, and legal arguments between the defense and the state, if it's a criminal case, are not interpreted, Ayabonga. That's the problem. So, I mean, mm. I just think as an accused person or as a complainant, you're sitting there and you just don't know what counsel are arguing about. It's, it's in English. It's in a language that you don't understand. And I why think, is you know, that? I've always wondered, why, why, why is the interpretation only, uh, I guess, you know, kept for the cross-examination or the questions that are posed to witnesses, but not necessarily in the heads of argument or, I guess, in the uh, arguments between the different counsel? Well, it goes down to so many things. It goes down to, again, cost. So we're placing, you know, um, a, a price on our languages in a sense. It goes down to time. You know, they say that it's time-consuming for the interpreter to sit there and interpret everything. But, I mean, you know, uh, then what kind of access to justice are we trying to create? Because, Mm. in my opinion, this is not equal access to justice. It's a different kind of justice that's being given to an English mother tongue speaker and to the rest of our country, which is unfair. And the rest of our country are the majority, you know. Mm. So... It, it, you know, when these policies are formulated, and it's not to critique or, or undermine in any way the Department of Justice and the judiciary, but it's to say, when you draft these policies, let's have an informed approach. Speak to the relevant people who these policies affect. How will it affect them? Speak to the experts. How can we come up with a better solution? And, and that just doesn't happen, Ayabonga, you know. We, we, we often write... Um, open letters, we encourage uh, the Department of Justice, we encourage the judiciary to engage with us, but that unfortunately doesn't happen. So there's already a breakdown in communication at policy level, and then we are implementing these policies that are just not practical or practicable in our courts. And it's Mm. unfair on the litigant, it's unfair even on the interpreter, it's unfair on the judicial officer who has to hear that case. You know, just listening to you speak makes me feel, I, I always tease Kenyan jurists uh, for the wigs, you know. Um, and I always, you know, it just feels so archaic and feels just so misplaced. I mean, it's just in the heat of East Africa. But I'm also starting to feel that our own justice system here, for all its uh, commitments, you know, to sort of Africanizing it or, I guess, embedding it in our context, is still faced with massive structural questions. I mean... We're mentioning the issue of language um, and when languages outside of English as a language of the record are inserted into, you know, the exercise of processes of justice. But the other one is, I guess, the point you were making earlier on, that um, aside from the language barriers, there's also a massive spatial dimension. I mean, the fact that I have to leave, you know, my area of, uh, you know, social relations where I live, where, you know, my networks are, uh, and go to another place, which is seen, I guess, as the house of justice, the magistrate, the, you know, the court, or wherever. Um, I guess is also very similar to this question of language and the type of advance people have to make in order to access justice away from their language, away from the spaces that they're in, just largely because of where the courts are and uh, also, I guess, the operative language. Definitely, and you know, Ayabonga, to pick up on what you were saying about Kenya. 
and, and South Africa just looking archaic at the moment. I mean, you know, sometimes we get so disillusioned and we think, is there any hope for us um, as forensic linguists working in this area? And is there any hope for our African language speakers? But, you know, when you look at, at other countries, and I'm always criticized for looking at European models and how they do it, but it's, it's not about adopting those European models and imposing it on us as Africans, but looking what is, what is actually being achieved and how they are achieving it and why it's so successful and then imparting it on us. Canada and Belgium have bilingual models, and of course they are not multilingual, they are bilingual, so it makes it a bit easier. But it's amazing how transformative and inclusive those models are and where you actually get to choose which language of the official languages um, you come to court in and give your, your evidence and directly to the court, and the court understands you. Whereas that, would, that doesn't happen in South Africa. And, you know, when we look at Kenya, when we look at Nigeria and Morocco, um, in, in Africa, they, they all lag behind us in South Africa as well. They have to have similar models, and it's also archaic. It adopts a Western approach where they go with English or they go with, with French, so it's, it's the colonizer's language that we are still using. And yet we are saying, even in South Africa, that English is, a trans, is, is the method in which we transform our legal system. It's, mm. it's kind of a vehicle that will transform us, but it's not. And that's where we misunderstand the transformation gen- agenda. We're even leaving out the language question as part of the transformation of the, of the legal system. Mm. Or when we include it, we say, no, English is, will, will be that vehicle, will be that mode that will transform us. It's, it's not. It doesn't create inclusivity. It's an ex- exclusive model for, for elite people who are a minority, and us included, in fact, Ayabonga, because we have such good access mm. to English. So, you know, it's, it's unfair on every level and from every perspective that you look at it. And I, I know that you, we cannot all wake up tomorrow morning and we, we can't be fluent in every 11, all the 11 official languages. I mean, that would be impossible. But we've got to start somewhere. You know, it has to happen incrementally. And, and it has to come from the Department of Justice and the judiciary. It has to be a joint initiative to say, how are we going to start piloting it in courts? How are we going to ensure that people have access to justice directly in their African languages? So if you, if you live in the Eastern Cape and you're accessing the magistrate's court and it's in an area where the majority of your people speak Isakosa, why can't you speak Isakosa when you come to court? Why must you speak English when the magistrate, the prosecutor, and the defense all mm. understand the language? It, it, it's I'm nonsensical, sure. in my opinion. And we can I mean, then like make some, that judgment if mm, it's needed. I'm just thinking in some of these small towns, I mean, you know, in the interior of the Eastern Cape or even Western Cape and Northern Cape, uh, where everybody in the entire courtroom, even the people who are there, um, you know, uh, anyone from the judge right through to the interpreter to the parties themselves, everybody speaks the same language, but everybody... I guess has to bend over backwards to speak English. It just seems like such an anomalous situation. It does, and it, it goes right back to this language of record policy that, you know, and if I, if I can mention to you, Ayabonga, for the listeners, we've just critiqued it uh, recently in our, in our recent publication, book publication. Mm. It's called A Handbook on Legal Languages on the Quest for Linguistic Equality in South Africa and Beyond. 
which just came out now in, in, in July 2021, that my colleagues, uh, Prof. Russell Kishila and Prof. Monwabisi Khalakhala, have co-authored with me. Mm. And, and in that publication, you know, um, I've addressed that the language of record policy and how it goes to the core of what we are actually doing to our African language speakers by by removing them from the justice system in a sense and, and placing them in a system that doesn't offer access to justice, where access to justice is just becomes impossible. You are up against another barrier where you come into court and instead of focusing on your case to prove your innocence or to prove somebody's guilt, you are caught up with trying to be understood by the court in the first instance so, you know, there are just so many levels to this language question in our courts that needs to be unpacked. And we've done this very nicely in the book. So for people mm-hmm. who are interested in this, in this debate, you know, um, we've done it in this book very nicely. But again, it's not about the ordinary person, Ayabonga, being able to change the system as much as we want to. Mm. It's about those in power who we need to continually challenge and say, please listen to us. We are knocking on your yeah. door. We are telling you um, our, our, our fellow South Africans, the majority are being excluded, mm. and, it's, and it's an unfair system, and we need to change and I it. I also think, I mean, I also think there's scope for some, uh, there's a word they often use, sort of some um, linguistic or even etymological development of the language of Isikosa, if indeed it is seen as a language of record, um, and even a language of justice. I mean, I think we, there's clear examples in South Africa. I mean, the youngest language that people often talk about in South Africa is Afrikaans. And we've mm. seen what happened during the 20th and the late 19th century uh, in terms of attempts to try and make that a language of the record, a language of instruction, a language of commerce. Um, and seemingly, I think we, we sometimes tend to compartmentalize even our own discussion on language, people will just say, go to the Pan-South Africa Language Board, they'll deal with you, Uh, instead of really embedding it, I guess, as praxis in every space that we operate in. And, you know, now that you're talking about language development and terminology and and, and so forth of the African languages, Ayabongo, what I'm proposing is not foreign to South Africa. We've seen cases in the high court that's preceded in Isikosa and Isizulu when we look at uh, state versus Damoy, state versus Matomela. Those are all just some of the examples, you know, where where cases have preceded in Isikosa fully. And um, there's been no issue because the judicial officer um, was able to understand its closer, the prosecutor could, and the defense could. And there was no problem. It went mm. off with ease. So it's not to say that the, the terminology lacks. I think that is a poor excuse. And as you say, Afrikaans is a, is a really good example of how languages other than English can be developed if we plow enough money into the development of these languages. Mm. And, and universities mm. are producing terminology. Rhodes has produced a lot of terminology for Isikosa. UKZN is doing a fantastic job with Isizulu. Uh, Northwest is, is also developing terminology. So, I mean, that is all terminology that we can use in our courts. So it's not to say mm. that there is a lack of terminology. That is a poor excuse that uh, the Department of Justice and, and other people opposing our arguments use. So, uh, you know, again, it goes back to willpower. What do we want the language of record to be in our courts? And who is this policy actually serving? 
and why are we fine with having this policy? Because, you know, Ayabonga, we come on the radio and we have these dis- excellent discussions with all of you, but then the people who need to be listening to us, and I'm sure many people um, in these positions of power have tuned into your show tonight, and it would be so wonderful if one of them could contact us and say, could we please pursue your ideas and transform it, not for, not for me, mm. not for the institution, but for the very people that our system affects, these litigants who cannot speak English. I like that. I like that, Dr. Zakra, and I uh, certainly hope uh, they do from time to time listen to us. I certainly hope this evening they are listening to us uh, because, indeed, this is something we would also like to follow up with. And hopefully maybe we can catch, uh, check in uh, with uh, the uh, Minister of Justice and Constitutional Development, or the DG, uh, to, I guess, just talk briefly about uh, some of the initiatives underway to do this. Because I would imagine, I mean, they from time to time, always opening up new courts and uh, we seldom I guess get a discussion about new ways of doing things and new ways of being in that space but Dr. Zakaria Dokrat we're gonna have to leave it there um, and Mastavatel to Wasikbulele for joining us uh, uh, this evening from the very very cold Makanda. That there's Dr. Zakaria Dokrat uh, postdoctoral research fellow